want to specify? episode of Canada FM, the show that deep dives into some of Canada's greatest bands that nobody else in the world really knows about. I am Ted. Word to Big Bird. I am Brian. Oh, throwing in the Big Bird puns. And uh, we, we're, we're going to do something. That was the Fresh Prince. I know it was the Fresh Prince. <laughs> What's it called? Whatever's clever, Trevor. Um, anyway, uh, we're going to get into our latest episode first. I mean, ah, boy, I, did I mention that I woke up at 3 a.m. to do the morning shift? And I've been trying to stay up, so I am mumbly Joe right now, so you'll have to forgive me throughout this episode. I'm going to screw up some words. Uh, when is that different from any other time? Hey, I, think I'm, I think I'm pretty Johnny on the spot, Teddy on the spot uh, with this uh, podcast. Ooh, and the pizza's here, I was just informed. So uh, let's make this quick. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, what's it called? Uh, no, no, Father's Day just passed up here, and, uh, you know, Brian and I, we learned a lot from our <laughs> old men. It didn't. Uh, just pass for you up in Thunder Bay. It passed everywhere where they celebrate Father's Day. Well, in North Day. America, in like the Dominican Republic, they celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day at different times. That's why they're like in in like April. Vladdy Guerrero is wearing like a pink armband because that's the Dominican Mother's Day. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, they celebrate at different times in the world. Uh, and it's a Hallmark holiday, let's face it, at the end of the day. Oh, for sure. If they wanted to pick up and say, now we're moving it to October, no one's going to bat an eyelash. I could see, you know, golf dads having a real problem. Like, no, nah, nah, I can't golf in October. Golf in October is beautiful. You get all the foliage. It, it depends. And it's foliage. It's foliage. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Bryn, my wife is here, my lovely wife. Get over here. She is a forestry student. It's foliage, right? It's foliage. (laughs) It's F-O-L-I-A-G-E, foliage. All right, you win this round. (laughs) All right. Anyway, uh, but we want to give a little tribute to our pops. Uh, Brian, what kind of, and specifically the music that they got us into. Uh, What was on Dave Last's uh, 8-track when you were growing up? Um... I mean, well, I've told the story about the, the Lake Placid trip and the Bruce and the Simon and Garfunkel, but uh, my dad was head of, you know, he he's an Archie Bunker meets Clint Eastwood type fella, very gruff, <laughs> and so you would kind of expect, uh, you know, you'd probably expect harder music, more, you know, rockin' edge, but uh, my dad has a weird taste. He likes his dad rock, Eagles, stuff like that. Loves the guess who, you know. You you wonder where I get my spite from, Ted. My dad. Oh yeah. He uh, when he was in college, he uh, his roommate was from Winnipeg, and okay. so he was player he was playing playing some guess who, and his girlfriend, who you know, 
I think she also came with him from Winnipeg. I guess they had a intimate knowledge of the guess who, and she hated Burton Cummings. He's like, oh, he's the biggest pig, biggest pig. And uh, so my dad walks over to the the hi-fi, cranks it up, and she pissed, got pissed off and stormed out the room. Um, but uh, so my dad loved the guess who, uh, but he also loved his buddy Holly, you know, the stuff from that era when they yeah. were growing up. Yeah. Um, and the most surprising one, my dad loves the Bee Gees and ABBA. That is a little surprising. And Boney M, too. He's a big Boney M yeah. guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he loves Boney M and, and just, and like Beach Boys. And, but um, it depends. I've gotten him into a few things that he's really enjoyed. Like, uh, I, when I played him the Seeger Sessions, the Bruce Springsteen uh, Seeger Sessions album. He lo- I did not expect him to take to it so well. Yeah. But he, he loved that. and uh, My dad we, was the we, same way with that album. We drove to Ottawa to watch the Leafs play, and he we played that. And then we played the live in Dublin. And that was like the first like three hours of the trip. Uh, so so he's a pretty eclectic guy. But uh, yeah, he loves the disco. Loves the uh, But he never really got into the Beatles. He never got into some of that stuff. He liked the Beach Boys and things like that. So he, he was very hit or miss. Okay. Oh, I... love the band. Sorry. Love the band. Uh, when I first watched The Last Waltz for the first time, he had all the intention of coming in the room and leaving he sat down and watched the whole thing with me and was giving all this backstory of the band because he grew up in uh going to shows in and around where the like the the band played yeah yeah in stratford and, so he, and uh all those places well that but also uh when he was in ryerson you know they were doing the the hawk's nest queen street beat ah, yes, right yes. so so uh he was telling me about seeing them and uh, he's like, oh yeah, that Rick Danko's from Simcoe, and I'm just like, yeah, I know, thanks. <laughs> and he's just, uh, but yeah, so you love that. So I, I, I like I, to think between both my parents, I get a well-rounded knowledge or uh, music taste from both of them. I think my favorite story of your dad and music was, um, we, I think we we're at like your grandmother's house or something, but you were t- telling me, and you wanted to get your dad to tell us about how he did some bouncing back in the day for some early tragically hip shows. Do you remember this? Yeah, he. I don't know what the hell, how he got this gig. I think he was between regular jobs. Because um, I think it was the early days of the hip. It probably would have been... Because if, if he was between jobs and I was a kid, it had to have been in like the Road Apples era. Like okay. early 90s. Yeah. Late late 80s. I don't know. But it's... Uh, yeah, he, he, was, he got a gig doing a festival. Just... Uh, and he did his part for the day. I think he was working security or checking tickets or whatever the hell it was. But he did his part. And they're like, do you want to go see the band? And he's like, hard pass. I'm going to go drink a few beers under a tree. <laughs> I remember him saying to us, he's like, you know what? Had I known them, had they been the Guess Who or the five-man electrical band out of Ottawa? <laughs> and then you start giggling at that name. He's like, maybe I would have cared. <laughs> Now uh, you see, with my dad, he uh, he's a huge blues guy, and number yeah. one and number two on my dad's like Mount Rushmore of musicians, and they're interchangeable. Eric Clapton and BB King, he loves yeah. both of them, and uh, also really into like like Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and all that. Loves that yeah. stuff. Unlike your dad, my dad loves the Beatles. Um, I remember we got we got him the complete discography. Um, 
just before it went digital. They re-released it. And I was super excited. I started loading um, all the albums onto my uh, iTunes like it was a gift for me. But yeah. uh, no, it was, it was it was his. So yeah, loves the Beatles. Um, uh, but yeah, with Bruce was kind of the same thing as with my dad because it was the Seeger sessions that turned him around because he's like, you know, I could never quite decide if I liked Bruce. But uh, I think this album's made up my mind. I like him. And so that's where yeah. my dad went. Yeah. My dad, like, he liked the very specific era of Bruce. Like, he probably liked the, uh, like, he liked the bit of Nebraska. I played Nebraska for him, and he liked it. He's like, oh, yeah, I remember this album. And he, because he, he also knew Atlantic City and everything, especially when the band redid it. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, uh, I think he probably only liked that era and, like, the uh, Tunnel of Love era, but he didn't much care for the Asbury Park kind of era. Okay. But, he was very choosy with his Bruce. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think my dad was kind of the same way. Because much like your dad, my dad really likes the band as well. And uh, there's a lot of band influence on those Seeger Session albums. A couple oh, yeah, of weird sure. things, though, my dad loves. Uh, he was born, like, same time as your dad, 1947. He loves oh, my big... My dad's 46. He's got a year on you. He's got a year on mine. So my dad loves, like, big band music from the 20s. Like Glenn Miller, yeah. Tommy Dorsey has always loved that stuff. When the Swing Revival happened, oh, boy, I, I didn't have to pay for my Cherry Pop and Daddy CD, Brian. My dad <laughs> wanted it for himself. Oh, yeah, yeah, he loves that stuff. Another thing he loves, bluegrass. He huh. loves Flats and Scruggs. And it's hilarious because <laughs> he gets the car and he puts it on. And the first song is that getaway music from Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> with him in the minivan, the Honda Odyssey here. Yeah, I remember we yeah. were, uh, we were because you got into Niagara a year ahead of me, yeah. and so I, uh, we were picking you up from school for some reason, but also I had some stuff to do there, kind of like pre-registration stuff, get my student card and all sure, that, yeah, yeah. and so your your dad drove me up, and we were going to bring you home, and I remember playing playing the Flats and Scrubs. <laughs> he loves Flats and Scrubs. And, uh, oh, he's also a big fan of, like, just, like, oldies in general. So you mentioned your dad with Buddy Holly. My dad loves Buddy Holly. Uh, it's the American Graffiti soundtrack. Got yeah, a ton of play in our house. Too. And old doo-wop. He loves the old doo-wop, too. So yeah, a lot we've, of that made in my a, house. We've made a joke about this that my mom and your dad would have gotten along musically yeah. and your mom and my dad would have gotten along. Yeah, cause cause my, mom, my mom likes, loves disco. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they would have gotten along great. Uh, interesting how that happens. So there you yeah, go. If you weird. wonder where some of these deep dives come from into the, the diversity in me and Brian's musical taste, you can blame uh, old Steve Last and no, yes, Dave Last, Steve Jessup. I told yeah. you I'm tired. I'm tired. I remember the last thing I'll say about your pop is and the blues thing is I remember when we had seen uh, Blues Brothers 2000. Oh, yeah. And yeah, loves the Blues Brothers. We were driving. I'm surprised your dad didn't join us, or did he go with Alex? I but, went with my uh, brother later. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, he was. That was where one of my first real blues lessons started. Was uh, you're like, Do you know any of these bands? And he's just like, boom, the whole car ride home. Your dad just like taught us. Yeah, yeah. No, he is a a student of the genre when it comes to blues, and which is weird too, because my dad never really like he played took piano lessons, and he said he'd like try to mess around on a guitar when we were kids. And I remember when my brother started learning the bass. 
time. My brother's not very good at it. He's still learning. He got really good over time. But I'm mean, since the early days. He's still learning. My dad just picked it up. He's like, let's see this thing. He's like, boop, 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 boop. <laughs> just came out did this walking baseline out of nowhere. Like, how'd you do that? He's like, oh, it's just, just kind of coming back to me. He just yeah. able to pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my my dad was always a sports guy, never very musically inclined. Yeah. He'd rather just enjoy it. My uncle uh, was the music fan or the guitar player in the family. You've seen my guitar. Yes, I got yes. this uh, heirloom. This I still don't know if it's a 50s or 60s Gibson SG. Apparently, it'll fetch a tidy sum. But I have, even before I got my grubby paws on it, uh, there was already a few dings and scratches and stuff. And then me kind of being a little careless, putting a couple more. But uh it's I wouldn't sell that thing for the world. I don't care if I was homeless, I'd still be like it'd just be me, a box, and that guitar. That's all I would have. But uh, I would never part with that thing. So we're about to jump into uh this ep- this next episode. It's gonna be a two-parter of Canada FM, all about the boys in Sloan, the pride of Halifax, Nova Scotia. And uh I, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna actually throw a shout a, a call to our listeners. If all eight of you can get behind this. Um yes. When, the first time I'd ever heard of Sloan was on a radio commercial that was played back in the day, and it was for some kind of contest that went along with one chord to another. Brian knows what I'm talking about. And the contest yes. inv- involved some stuffed shirt going, excuse me, sir, do you know what kind of music you're listening to right now? And it was everything that you've done wrong playing in the background. He's, the guy was like, oh, that's Sloan. <laughs> He's like, that's right. And did you know that you could win this, this, this by listening to Sloan? I didn't know. And that's like the whole commercial. Just like Keanu Reeves talking to some stuff shirt. I was about to say, that sounds like Tobey Maguire's impression of <laughs> Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I didn't say it was a good mimic. Uh, I've been looking for that commercial on YouTube so we can post it to our Instagram. And I haven't been able to find it all week. So if you are aware of this commercial, if you work for a radio station or have access to one that played this commercial into the, the back of the day, please send it to us. DM us on the social media. We want to hear it. We want to share it to the world because that was the first time I had ever heard of Sloan. The yeah, I'm I'm pretty good at finding things. I, I've uh, I can weave my way around the YouTubes, but I've I've not been able to find it. But. Yeah. Uh, we we both have our own Halifax connections, or at least to the East Coast. Uh, <laughs> we, our college roommate Adam is a great guy. Gave us a very lovely tribute when we first decided to do this podcast. Yes, he but he also he did a classic Adam thing where he'd give you a compliment, then a nice backhanded uh, compliment at the same time. He's like. <laughs> So my friends did this most millennial thing ever and start a podcast. And I was like, uh, yes, that sounds like Adam. But uh, he's he's been in the Navy for the last eight years, something like that, 10 years. But he's yeah. out in Halifax. Um, uh, a good buddy of mine, Rob, who I met at uh, camp. He's uh, I call him the new funky diabetic because he's uh, he <laughs> likes to uh, fight with the original. But he's the new one. But uh, he's a great guy. And, uh, and then you... Your wife's family comes from Halifax, Your right? Your entire in-laws. They're all from Nova Scotia. My, my, well, my, her entire in-laws. Okay. Her entire <laughs> family, my in-laws, are all yeah. from Nova Scotia. Yeah, they're all out there. And it really sucks because we were supposed to fly out so I could meet all of this East Coast family that I now have. Uh, T-minus before the pandemic started. And then, of course, Porter shut down. We couldn't go. It sucked. So I haven't been able to go out and meet everyone or travel to the East Coast. 
But uh, I will say this. We're talking about East Coast Connections. I actually work with a fella who went to high school with Chris Murphy. Ah. And actually knows him decently because they come to Thunder Bay every now and then. He'll go and see Murphy. And they know each other like, hey, man, how you doing? They'll, they'll like recognize each other. And he said uh, when Chris Murphy a few years ago, he had like a, one of those like quick battles that you'll get sometimes when you're older with Bell's palsy where your face freezes. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. So he sent him a message on Instagram wishing him well. And Chris Murphy's response was, hey, man, I actually had a dream about you last night. That's so weird. No, it made him feel great. He personalized it and everything like that. So, uh, good guy, Chris Murphy. He 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 remembers uh, he remembers the people that got him there. You should uh, get your colleague to give him a shout out. Be like, hey, my uh, my work friend is doing a whole profile about you guys. Give him some props. We need the props. You know, maybe I'll take a picture of me and him like waving. And I'll be like, hey, Chris Murphy, you know this guy? He listens to Canada FM. So should you. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, well, let's get back in our time machines, shall we? And head out to Halifax High School, the high school band circuit of 1986. This is where Sloan started. I think every little town, no matter how big or small, has the high school band circuit where they all just oh, kind yeah. of share members and people are in like three or four bands. That was happening back there. Um, the band has Matt Murphy, no relation to Chris, to thank for their formation. You see, he introduced Chris Murphy to Jay Ferguson, and the three of them formed a group known as the Deluxe Boys. Uh, Matt Murphy would later actually find success with bands The Super Friends and The Flashing Lights. And remember, The Flashing Lights had quite a, quite a big uh, bit of success on much music back in the day when they did those indie spotlights. They'd play The Flashing Lights. Uh, Chris and Jay would actually ditch Matt, who got them together, and they formed their own band called Kearney Lake Road. A project Hold on one second. When you, I saw that in the script, and you said you didn't like elaborate. Why was he just a subpar musician? I, I don't you, know, Brian. Maybe so, he had another band. Well, I don't know. I, what do you want they me to do? You want me to call him up? <sighs> I expect resolution. But do you want this podcast to take years? It's not going to take years. Don't be such a hyperbolic it's little cutting wiener. Cutting out the chuffa. You know that. Chuffa man is shit you throw away. You're chuffa. <laughs> That was good. I'll give you that. Anyhow, Kearney Lake Road was the band that featured Chris Murphy and Jay Ferguson, uh, but it would only last about three years. And by this time, Chris had graduated high school and he was attending the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, where he met drummer Andrew Scott. And he thought he'd be a good fit for he and Jay. So the three of them would join up together in jam sessions. And the earliest formation of Sloan was officially together. However, this band was missing a pretty important piece, and that was a bass player. Uh, Murphy had seen Patrick Pentland, who I should mention, born in Ireland, raised in Jamaica, arrived in Halifax to join this band. Uh, they seen Patrick Pentland uh, play guitar and sing with other groups, thought he'd be a good fit for the band. Uh, there was only one issue, and that was Patrick was not a very good bass player. Um, the boys in Sloan say that this experiment with Patrick Pentland on bass lasted about a year. Usually midway through shows, he and Chris Murphy would switch anyway so he could play guitar. Uh, and then later they made it official and uh, Murphy took over on the bass duties. A lineup that would last 30 years and counting. That was it. No substitutions. No trade-offs. It's just been these four guys. I have a touring guy who plays some keyboards and some percussion, but... It's it's just the four of them. 
that's very rare in this day and age because uh, even like the Foo Fighters keep expanding. They have uh, they carry on a whole percussion section and all these things, but uh, they have people who are unofficial members of the band. But it's rare for not only, especially in the Canadian music scene where people, you know, money could always be a problem. And of course, just the music scene, especially because those guys moved to Toronto for a bit. I don't know if they're back in Halifax or if they stay in Toronto, but uh, the Toronto music scene is so incestuous where they're all jumping in each other's bands. Mm -hmm. You think that somebody would have left and be like, oh, this band's more successful. I'm going to stay with them or whatever. You know what I mean? Well, and and I think one of the things that makes Sloan special is that each member of the band brings in something unique. You know, they all write their own songs. uh, They all sing. um, You know, they all contribute something at the end of the day. And without that collaboration... Just wouldn't be Sloan now, would it? No. And also, I read an article with Jay where they were talking about what's the key to your longevity. And he's like, to be honest, splitting things four ways where um, yeah. everyone like some bands by committee don't work. Like we've talked about Fishbone before. They were a band by committee and it went in nine different directions and they never got anywhere. Uh, instead of band by committee where everyone gets their own way, everyone just gets a small, you know, their time to shine and they make it work. Yeah, yeah, and and that's cool too because there's no burnout. Yeah, you're free to do other stuff as long as you show up with three songs, <laughs> you'll be good for the next album. Exactly. Now the other cool thing about Sloan, which I really think makes their live show exciting, is they have different lineups within the band. So your standard lineup is Murphy on bass, Pentland and Ferguson on guitar, and Andrew Scott on the drums. However, occasionally when Andrew Scott sings, he's not Levon Helm, doesn't sit behind the kit and sing. He'll move <laughs> up and play guitar, and when that happens, Murphy moves to the drums, and Ferguson plays bass. Then there's other tracks where they have some nice key- piano, and uh, when that happens, Ferguson drops the guitar altogether, Murphy's back on bass, Scott's back on drums, and Jay Ferguson's playing the electric piano. And they did that a lot on one chord to another. Lots of songs featuring, yeah. uh, as it went along, they used keyboards and organs a lot more for that really, really fleshed out sound. But this isn't what they sounded like back then. Not by a long shot. But before we no. get into the first uh, EP and the first kind of recorded music in Sloan's history, Brian, a little trivia. Any idea where the name Sloan comes from? Uh, I got nothing. They had a friend, a hanger-on, if you will, by the name of Jason Larson. And apparently, this guy Jason Larson was terrible at his job. So bad, in fact, that his boss would call him Slow One. However, as you know, you're in Halifax, you're close to Quebec. His boss had a big French accent. And Slow One sounded like Sloan. And they became Sloan. (laughs) That's how they did it. And actually, to return the favor for giving them this name, Sloan, uh, Larson's photo was used as the cover of their first ever release, the EP Peppermint. So he got his 15 minutes of fame. Well, that's something else. Now, much like Treble Charger, Sloan was able to fund their first album by winning a battle of the bands. And that was the style at the time. Yeah, it really was. Now, they did have to fund it themselves. So basically what they did for the Peppermint album was the grand prize was not a recording an album. It was to record one song for a compilation album. But the guy who produced that one song, his name was Terry Pulliam, um, Sloan convinced him to stretch their studio time a little bit. Make sure they get this one right. And uh, the result of that 
was the Peppermint EP, which was released independently, and the group used the studio session as a demo, and they ended up signing with Geffen Records because of it in 1992. So it all worked out for them. The Peppermint EP was released in August, and the band has said that they were modeling their sound at the time as a mix of the Beatles and Sonic Youth. And, I hate Sonic Youth so much. Okay, I don't like to do really, really, really negative um, gripes on this show, Brian, but I, don't I understand it. that they're... Because I don't like it when other people do it. So let me give Sonic Youth oh, that's their fair. dues first, okay? They're unquestionably insanely influential. So many yes. bands from this time period would point to Sonic Youth as one of the bands that influenced them the most. Okay, yes. and I can't take that away from them. They earned that. And on a more progressive front, uh, Kim Deal. No, uh, no, that's the Pixies. Or, sorry, Kim, Kim Gordon. Gordon. Kim, Kim Gordon. Gordon. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, there wasn't too many uh, front leading bass women. So. Yeah, it was, it was basically uh, her and Kim Deal and Tina from the Tina from the Talking Heads. Oh, it's Tina Weymouth, and then yeah. later oh. Melissa Offdemar. Well, then it became commonplace, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it almost became a cliche, if you will, in uh, the alt-rock scene. That's uh, true. A little later on in the 90s. Um, but and to say that, you, you mentioned Kim Gordon. They wanted that Sonic Youth sound so bad that they actually uh, recruited Jennifer Pierce, who played in the all-group gr- group girl band, ugh, all-girl band, told you I'm tired, called Jail, to provide backup vocals. So they had that male-female vocal exchange, like uh, like Sonic Youth did. So they really modeled it closely to that format. And uh, yeah, okay, so let's get back into Sonic Youth. Yep. I've tried. I have tried with that. Same. I really have. There's been several periods in my life where I wanted to sound hip and with it. And hey, how come I never got into Sonic Youth? Well, let's just... It just doesn't happen for me. You know, just for shits and giggles, I've, I'm probably the more, the most, not more, the most um, open now than I ever have been in terms of music. You know, I'm mm-hmm. like, it's weird. As you get older, most people kind of like say, no, nah, no, nah, this sucks. That sucks. This sucks. Uh, I've actually gotten more open. Yeah. Maybe because I'm trying to fight off that uh, old man getting like, uh, you know, you want to still say relevant and hip. So I, you know, very open ears. Yeah, but I was literally I, on my lunch break today at work. I was just like, I'm gonna throw on some Spotify, throw on some Sonic Youth. I felt like Peter Gibbons when he's checking those 90 uh, messages on Office Space. He's like, every two seconds, as soon as it starts, I'm like, I can't get into this. <laughs> click, click, click. And I'm just like, oh god. Um, it was just not good. And also, I like their style. I've never been that into the Velvet Underground. I bought that one, the Velvet Underground with Nico. I've yeah, never I've been. That album. I've never been that into like Lou Reed. I like Take a Walk on the Wild Side's nice, but that kind of like low, kind of grimy, kind of like singing Reed. style. Like he's fine. I just I've never gotten that into him, and okay. I feel like that's probably where they they take a lot of their influences from. If I had to venture yeah, a guess, art. So they they started off by calling it art rock. Yeah, art rock came became post punk, and post punk kind of became shoegaze. Now yeah. shoegaze, as I knew it for a while, was bands like The Strokes, 
that just showed no animation when they were on stage. They just kind of looked at their shoes. And it wasn't really until I started listening to interviews with Sloan where they're trying to correct people who said, oh, they're a grunge influence. They're, they're from the grunge scene. They're like, no, we came out at the same time as grunge, but we were more shoegaze. And yeah. uh, the way that it was... My Bloody Ferg- Valentine. Yeah, stuff like My that. Bloody Valentine, Bell and Sebastian, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, the way that Jay Ferguson says is that they like shoegaze because they liked all the effects uh, that they would use at that time. And that was true. They would get like kitchen knives and fiddle with their strings on their guitars and stuff like that you know what i mean and they play with the feedback with the amplifiers and do all these little effects to really just make a wall of noise that went over it um having said all that with the heavy heavy sonic youth influence and because i'm going to give a lot of later albums of sloan some very high marks (laughs) peppermint was just okay The one thing I really did like was that early version of Underwhelmed. A track that they definitely improve on their next release. I wasn't able to listen to it. I kind of skipped straight ahead to Smeared. (laughs) Okay. But also, I think you almost got in my head a little bit from a few weeks back where we were talking about the EPs where I just got, you know, you always just kind of gloss over the EPs. Yeah. I I was kind of doing that too. I was like, eh, most EPs just have re-recordings or original recordings of stuff they did later. So I'm like, eh, I'm sure I'll catch it on Smear to the next one. So I'm sure I didn't miss anything. So and we right. also learned that from like doing like the um, the, the, the Paola's episode. That yeah. first EP was four songs. They all appeared on other albums later. So we all got a taste of it later. But yeah. you know, not all of these appeared on future releases. Well, maybe um, I'll go back. But let's uh, let's jump into that because for the release of Smeared, uh, Sloan utilized producer Terry Pulliam again, who uh, produced those demos that uh, became the creation of Peppermint, and uh, they recorded Smeared for twelve hundred bucks. That's it. That ain't not bad. No, and in the first year that it was released, it sold more than one hundred and fifty thousand copies worldwide. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, I mean, that was on Geffen, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and um, I know that riding the coattails of Nirvana and all these other bands at that time, plus, thanks to Sloan, people like Joel Plaskett and a few yeah. other bands, and uh, Halifax had its own little scene in the 90s, or in the early 90s, where it became a place to be. It really did. If you hear a guy like Plaskett, he'll 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 tell you in an interview. Uh, was one of his biggest influences is Sloan. Yeah. No, they've got such a big footprint, especially in the East Coast rock scene. Um, two singles came off of Smeared. You had Five Hundred Up, which was sung by Andrew Scott. And I love how, like, the Andrew Scott songs later would become kind of a novelty, kind of like the Ringo song on every album, you know what I mean? Like, oh, what's the Scott song going to be, you know? But here, it was one of the main singles and one of the first tastes of Sloan people got. Same thing on Twice Removed. People yeah. in the Sky was uh, was a big single for that. We'll get into that in a minute, yeah. but uh, it's a great song. So he, he was almost like a hidden, uh, hidden weapon keeping the back pocket at the start. Well, he really was. Yeah. And he still is to this day. I know you posted that video of losing California on our Instagram today. And my brother wrote, 
Andrew Scott's a fucking great drummer. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, he really is. Yeah, he just he's not flashy like a Neil Pert type. He's just uh, he can get on a roll, but he doesn't. He's not showy. Yeah, we've got some of the more underrated musicians uh, in our also, bands up here. Speaking of Andrew Scott, yeah. take a look at him, like especially in the Losing California video. Do you think he almost looks like he could be Rick Danko's child? I don't see Rick Danko so much, no. Okay. He looks so like was, someone. I can't. He, I he has Maybe a very British the, look to him, I think. Maybe it was the mop of hair, and I was watching The Last Waltz recently, and I don't know, maybe I saw the same kind of mop of hair and kind of dopey face on him as I saw in Rick Danko, but I don't know, maybe I He's just... Got, see, Danko had kind of like a, a pointy nose. Uh, <laughs> Scott's face is like stretched out. It's very British. He's got a very British look to him. Uh, here's, here's one thing about Andrew Scott, a little trivia. Did you know that he uh, still to this day holds several high school track and field records out there in Nova Scotia? Oh, really? Yeah, phenomenal athlete. Well, why anyway, I mean, so good at banging the banging the skins? Yeah, because he's uh, he's got the strength and the core and the uh, the the cardio. Yeah, I once. I mean, I'm also in terrible shape, so this is not a uh, not a fair assessment at all. But I once got super sweaty just playing the the drums on on Guitar Hero or a rock band. Well, when you're not used to it, that yeah. could be a workout. I remember the first time, actually, to this date. And I've been playing drums since high school. Well, I stopped once I moved into an apartment and drums were frowned upon. Um, But when I did play drums, I only ever got to play one show with a band ever. It was our friend Kevin's band and his drummer had prom. So they asked me if I wanted to play and I wanted to do a good job. Right. So the night before I got there, they gave me like their little demo recording because they wanted to do a bunch of originals that I had to basically learn on the fly. So I, I wanted to study them and, you know what I mean, get in there. So I'm just sitting there. I'm listening. I'm playing along. When I woke up the next morning, it was like I had gone to the gym and lifted 300 pounds over my head without stretching. It hurt. Oh, I believe it. So much in my biceps, in my pectorals, in my forearms. I was in so much bloody pain before we played. And then when we played, it just grinned and bear it and plowed through. But oh, yeah. I'll tell even, you, if you're not prepared, oh, man, it could be a workout. Even just the rare times I've got to play at your house or when we jammed with uh, Brent's. Our yeah. buddy Brent's had a nice kit and a nice setup. Uh, even just the rare times he let me on his kit, I'd be like, this is exhausting. But it begs the question, how do you have fat drummers? It's such They're a workout. Used to it. You're, if you They're want, used you're, to it. And you think in the grand scheme of things, there's not too many like drummers that are morbidly obese. You know, you get the big guy who will play the drums, a bigger fella, but you can be a bigger person and still be in shape. That's possible. I guess. I mean, Bud yeah. Gaw got super fat and... Uh, that was largely from drugs. But wouldn't that make him skinny? <laughs> uh, sometimes they got the reverse effect. And it might have been from uh, him getting sober when he gained all that weight, too. Because when you get sober, you gain a lot true. of weight. Because, yeah, yeah he, he did get bigger during the... Because uh, he was still pretty fit during the... Long Beach the All Stars years. It was yeah. mainly the the Sublime with Rome years, and that was maybe yeah. he was probably like a dad and all that. Yeah, it's, it's also when you when you clean up when your body's used to drugs, something else in your body's got to change. And often when you get clean, you'll gain some weight. Yeah, it's like when people quit smoking. Yeah. Anyhow, enough about fat drummers. Let's <laughs> talk about the more rocking of the two singles, uh, Underwhelmed. Now this proved to be one of the band's most acclaimed songs of all time. I said you 
listed it as the greatest Canadian song of all time in 2007. Chart Magazine had it as the second greatest Canadian song of all time in 1996, 2000, and 2005. And get this, it reached number 25 on Billboard Magazine's Modern Rock Charts. So they did have a marginal hit in the U.S. on that first album. And I got to tell you, I know before we did Canada FM, Brian and I did try to get a podcast off the ground called Top Five, right? Teddy and Brian's yeah. Top Five. And we did our first one that we did was debut album opening tracks. Right. If we could record that podcast again, I would like to submit for you, Underwhelmed. Can you imagine if I that's mean, we, the We could first, always do an off topic about it. Well, we could. But can you imagine if that was the first song you had ever heard by Sloan? It'd blow your mind. It is quite the opening statement track. I will give it that. Yeah, it, how it comes in with that that weird kind of effect, and then Chris Murphy gets into his lyrics, and they talk about eating their young, and she skips her classes and gets good grades, and all these just weird lyrics that stand out and have stood the test of time. One of my favorite singles from uh, from Sloan. It is quite good. I mean, it's. My only thing is it's there's no real chorus about it so it's uh it's catchy in its own way but it's it it's in terms of like melodic songs I mean I am the cancer was super good sugar tune uh lemon zinger uh, a j song was very good left of center was great uh but this one just kind of had its own edge and it's it did stand apart from a lot of the other songs on the album so that's why it's probably got so so much regard look at you i'm brian i only listen to the deep cuts singles are for for rookies (laughs) singles are for noobs yeah what do you know (laughs) yeah well because underwhelmed caught the attention of uh, radio listeners in the u.s uh the label decided to capitalize on sloan's success and they booked them as the opening act for the Lemonheads on their 1993 North American tour. Do you remember the Lemonheads? Yeah, they did that cover of uh, Mrs. Robinson, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, and no disrespect to them. I'm sure the label was really trying to pump up the Lemonheads at the same time. But <laughs> you just think to yourself, had they saddled Sloan with a band in hindsight's 2020 that had more lasting power than the Lemonheads? If that would have just kind of upped their status a little more in the U.S., you know. Well, a couple a couple of weeks ago, you were telling me about they paired up the Tragically Hip with Nirvana. Yeah, and I said, you know, they were both label mates. I'm surprised they didn't do it with Sloan. And you listen to that album; that would be a perfect um, compa- companion to like the their Bleach album or whatever the the fuck Nirvana's first one before the. It- teen spirit you gotta remember though with sloan the guys in the band they didn't like the grunge label back then because they didn't consider themselves to be a grunge band like i said they consider themselves at least at this point to be more shoegaze than anything else and yeah, then later they were, to be they more were hipsters than before they else. were hipsters well basically they were and so yeah they're on a grunge label and they came out at the same time as all these grunge bands but they didn't want to be considered a grunge band so that might have been their call i guess don't put us on the road with one of these grunge bands we're not grunge 
And I you mean, know they also, stick to their uh, guns. They've how many how many independent releases have they put out that have been smash hits that they've done in spite of a record label? Yeah, and yeah. I've, I've also heard stories of them like just declining potential lucrative. You know, put our your music in this commercial or that, and they're like hard pass. Yeah, they didn't believe in it. They all they've always kind of taken the road less traveled, and they've still done so well for themselves. Well, they've bet on themselves. And yeah. you know what? It's a bet that they've uh, they've absolutely won. I guess okay. the last the last thing I'll say about the uh, the touring with the Lemonheads, I guess they're they're rock enough, but they're just different enough that they could stand out from the Lemonheads. So people might actually be like, "Wow, that Sloan band really made an impact." Where if you know you're going to see a band like Nirvana or uh, Sonic Youth, and you get this kind of droning guitar heavy guitars like oh we're just it's basically been like three hours of that all night they might not make an impression you know what i mean that might have been one of their concerns you know when you're the opening act you don't want to steal too much luster from the main band but at the end of the day you want people to remember you as well oh it's Um, like when we saw oh fine i was gonna say like when we saw who the hell did i i think it was flogging molly I was more as as good as that flogging Molly show was. I was more enthralled by the opening acts. They were too good, and, and, and right there they did their job. You know what I mean? Yeah. They let the main band shine, but everyone remembered who they were. Um, as far as recognition for the album Smeared goes, it has been widely praised by music critics across Canada. It's viewed as a seminal alternative rock album. Uh, currently listed at number eighty six. In music journalist Bob Morisot's list of the 100 greatest, or is it Mercero? Mercero's list of the 100 greatest Canadian albums of all time. This guy likes Sloan, and he's put a lot on that list. Um, and also the Juno Awards did give them their first recognition. They received a nomination that year for Best New Group, only to lose to folk rockers The Waltons. Died. The only Waltons I know is that terrible show. Yeah, I guess, you know, I I was looking through their discography because the name sounds so familiar. And I thought they sung this song called It Really Beats the Hell Out of Me, which I used to like when I was younger. They played on Chum FM sometimes back when it was an adult contempo station. And I liked it. It was a good tune. But I, I, I thought it was the Waltons, but I couldn't find it. I went through all their records to see if I could find it. And then don't think it was them. Now, well. Now, while fame and notoriety were finally coming Sloan's way, things weren't as rosy behind the scenes when the band returned to the studio in 1993 to record their second album. Twice Removed was released on August 30th, 1994, and it received very little promotion from Geffen Records. They were pissed off that Sloan had abandoned a lot of that grungy shoegaze style that was viewed as being hip at the time that was present on Smeared for a sound that was a lot more upbeat and accessible. They drove the album nuts. And the straw that broke the camel's back was when Sloan refused the label's request to re-record Twice Removed. They wanted them to do it all over again, make it harder, make it more accessible for the kids. And right there, they spat in the label's face and said no. Well, actually, you know, that's testament to sticking to your guns and like believing in the sound that you created but last night when i was listening to this album i was doing like some research about what al- what songs came or not what songs what albums came out in 94 mm-hmm. and it was an interesting year for music because certain hip-hop was kind of changing like the public enemy and tribe and some of these bands were kind of on their way out uh all the 80s 
big bands were kind of on their way out and there was this new wave of uh you know green day put out uh uh what's it, what should i call it uh dookie Thank you. Uh, Ransom put out Let's Go. All these great punk albums were coming out. Uh, Weezer put out a self-titled album. All these, um, uh, you know, these Dinosaur Jr., all these seminal indie bands for that era. There's a a perfect example of the band that the label probably wanted Sloan to resemble, Dinosaur Jr. Yeah, and Jesus and Mary Chain. All these indie bands were coming out. Jimmy World put out their first album that year. Uh, So you can kind of get a sense of what bands... Uh, and then there was also the Britpop, Blur, Oasis, Pulp were all yeah. putting out albums. So you can kind of see where music was going. And for Sloan to kind of like, we see the the tides turning this way. We're going to kind of go. We're still going to stay in those waters, but we're going to shift a little bit eastward. You know what I mean? Yeah. So well, I, well, while Geffen was mad, the critics certainly weren't. Chart Magazine listed twice removed as the greatest Canadian album of all time in polls conducted in 1996 and 2005. Our buddy Bob Mercereau, who I was just talking about, he put it at number 14 on his list of the 100 greatest Canadian albums. Even Spin Magazine labeled it as the best album you didn't hear. And then how about this? A retroactive praise. And there need to be more awards like this, by the way. Retroactive oh, yeah. awards. I still say the Oscars and the Grammys should be held 10 years after the music <laughs> of that time was released to really see how good it was. Because usually see, we don't know at the time. Or to see how overrated something else might have been. Well, you know precisely. What, I mean? what you would have given it to might not have been the thing that stood the test of time. It was like when everyone got on Mr. Walking in Memphis, Mark Cohn's case, because he won the uh, Best New Artist in like 1991. And I uh, didn't do anything except for that song. And everyone's like, ah, the Grammys are a joke. I'll tell you, it's a great song, though. Okay, of all the random bands or singers that you could have chosen who were either one-hit wonders or flops afterwards, you chose that guy? Well, because he won Best New Artist of the Grammys. All right. And that's a great song, too. And you should see me do it in karaoke. I tear the house down. I'm sure you do. Some guy came up to me and said, feel this, feel this. Goosebumps. That's what I got. (laughs) Oh, yeah. High praise for my walking to Memphis rendition. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, well getting back to it. In twenty fifteen, Sloan was given the Slate Family Polaris Heritage Prize, which is a retroactive mu- music award, uh given to some of the greatest re- albums released before the inception of the Polaris Music Prize that's given out every year. We'll talk about that in part two. Um Yeah, won that as being a seminal album in Canadian history. Um, and the Junos recognized Twice Removed as well. Uh, they gave it a nomination for Best Alternative Album of the Year, which it would ultimately lose to Rose Chronicles. Have you ever heard of Rose Chronicles? I have not. That makes two of us. <laughs> Here, before uh, we... Give me two seconds. Before we move on to the next album or whatever you want to do, I just got to take, got to take a quick squirt. All right. Uh... Let's talk about the singles from this album, okay. shall we? The Andrew Scott song, People of the Sky. And I love how at the beginning, he was like, you're guaranteed to get that Scott single. <laughs> I wish yeah. they kept that up, too. Uh, People of the Sky was released as a single. It's like a three-legged dog in search of a crush. As was Chris Murphy's Coax Me. Which 
which reached number 30 on the Canadian charts, and it kind of foretold the turmoil the band was going through at the time. Uh, as Chris Murphy describes the song as an allegory about the difference between playing for a major label and playing for yourself. And Sloan has always been much more happy when they're playing for themselves. Oh, yeah. And uh, that uh, People of the Sky, just the sound of it and like his singing and like the very unique lyrics and everything, you could almost set your watch to bands like The Weaker Thans. Like uh, that John K. Sampson fella wrote very mm-hmm. similar style, but like, he was I still in Propagandi. I can see Propagandi. a lot of similarities there, yeah. He was still in Propagandi at the time, so I think he's uh, weaker than started shortly after. I can see this song, or at least this album, being a huge influence on him. Uh, the, the other thing, too, with People of the Sky, that it always sticks out to me, because the only Sloan album I owned, my brother had a whole bunch of their releases, but the only one I ever owned was The Greatest Hits, because I, let's face it, I'm a Greatest Hits kind of guy. What's what's that uh, the line? <laughs> greatest hits greatest album for housewives and little girls. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I like the greatest hits albums. Uh, so I had their greatest hits. A sides win again, and um, People of the Sky was the one song that was. It, it was almost like it was done by a different band. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just kind of on its own. In terms of the vibe and everything about it. And I remember hearing it on the edge back in the day. And I never would have put two and two together that it was Sloan. But that's the thing. The Andrew Scott songs, they, they kind of stop after this being released as singles. And he just kind of become a novelty. So, kind of sucks. Well, I think it was, uh, I mean, it's one of those things. He could have either had a roadblock or a writer's block. Or it could have been, um, you know, sometimes bands have that, you know, best song wins. And... Even by the time they get to Money City Maniacs, Jay even said, like, uh, I had to compete with Pat because he was like the single, like the hit machine. <laughs> so there's one song he wrote on that that was like, I just, he wrote all these great, like, pop songs. So he's like, I got to throw something on there just to compete. And so maybe Andrew Scott didn't have anything at the time to compete. But isn't that just... more of the formula that makes Sloan work right there? He's not required to come back for their next recording session with singles. He yeah. can come back and write whatever he wants. It's going to get on the album because he's a member of the band. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's the way bands should work. Yeah. All right. Some other trivia about this album. Uh, the lyrics on the opening track, Pen Pals, you might think they sound really, really weird. Well, they actually consist of broken English letters to Kurt Cobain that the band was able to obtain through Kevin Records. So if you read those out, they don't make a whole lot of sense to you. Uh, It's because they are kind of translated to English from another language. So that's kind of funny. Uh, Then also, uh, in the Brian Lee O'Malley graphic novel, Lost at Sea, um, he would use, he would reference the song Pen Pals. One of the characters sings it in one of the comic book panels. And of course, Brian Lee O'Malley is best known for his work on what series, Brian? Let's see how well you Scott, know your comic books. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. There you go. And then later, when they do the Scott Pilgrim versus the world movie, Chris Murphy would serve as the musical coach for uh, Michael Sarah and uh, Allison Pill and. Uh, Whatever the other two actors who played Young Neil and uh, the main guy. Yeah, the guy from Snow Day and uh, <laughs> I've, I've seen that other guy in other stuff. Oh, he was the guy that got super drugged up in uh, 21 Jump Street at the start. Oh, okay. All right, and I'll have to go back just, and watch that. Yeah, he gets drugged up and videotapes it on YouTube and they think like, oh, this guy's awesome. Like, he's, he's dead. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. 
that was the same guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what did I write here? Oh, here's my next note. Love this album. <laughs> Dynamite dropping dead. It's the well. Here's the thing. After listening to Peppermint, listening to Smeared, this is the Sno- uh, Sloan I know and I love. This yeah. is the Sno- Sloan. I keep wanting to say Snow. Maybe we'll do an episode on him. Uh, <laughs> that I really became attached to. And uh, I also wrote, because you're always big at pulling out the uh, deep cuts. I wrote down two of my favorites here that were my favorites, because I, I, I'll probably forget them. Uh, shame, shame. Shame, shame. Because you didn't read all of Dame's names. That was one of my favorites. And Snowsuit Sam. Was one of my favorites. Yeah, I really like Snowsuit Sound. That was a really good one. In fact, I will. Well, I'll mention this a little bit later on. But when they did the Double Cross album for their 20th anniversary, they did these interviews with all these other musicians and actors and artists, and they had Jason Schwartzman in it. I guess he's a huge Sloan fan. That's cool. uh, He was wearing a Jay's hat actually when they interviewed him too. Uh, And Snowsuit Sound was one of his favorite songs. Yeah. He's I mean, like, I get that because uh, Jay Jay always kind of wrote the offbeat ones, kind of more slower, more you know thoughtful, and that sounds like it's more Schwartzman speed. Well, we'll get to a Jay song in just a second. Um, the conflicts with okay. oh, what did you think of this album? Sorry, how rude of me. I'm used to it. But <laughs> no, I, I I thought it was great. It's weird. It took me about two or three listens to really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, Because at first it was kind of like, I was about to be like, you know, is Sloan one of those bands that is like a singles band? Are they actually like, you know, like a Red Hot Chili Peppers where the great, greatest hits album, but, you know, kind of okay album sprout. But then once once you actually digest the depth that Sloan truly has, you can actually appreciate these are just solid albums top to bottom well the conflicts with geffen records were starting to impact the band's mental health and for a period in 1995 they actually unofficially broke up can you imagine that if that was it sloan was done after tri- twice removed that'd be horrible I, like what I a love, waste of good music if all that stuff was gone yeah i <gasps> i i didn't even i wouldn't have never even heard of them because you know the next album that we're gonna do is the one where i got hip to them I know that's the great thing about Twice Removed is that's the sound they built on. That's the sound they perfected. If they were all done, that would have been horrible. But uh, basically, they were going to finish their dates. That included Edge Fest. They were going to play Edge Fest, and they were going to call it quits. Um, however, knowing that their independent label, Murder Records, could use a financial boost, they decided to do one more album just to bring some money into Murder Records. Uh, so they got released by Geffen Records and uh, something that was a lot easier said than done. Uh, but yeah, they, they put out their next album, One Chord to Another, completely independent on Murder Records. And it cost them $10,000 to make and two weeks to record. That's it. My God, what are That's these? It. The, are they the Roger Corman of movies or music? <laughs> Fast and cheap. Well, yeah. they know what they want going in and there's not going to be a whole lot of infighting. Like, I want to sound this way. No, the person who wrote it knows what it's going to sound like so that yeah, makes they're life basically really the, easy because that's the thing don't 
I don't really look at all the liner notes, but uh, don't these guys are they're all credited as producers as well because they're kind of like, hey, yeah, play that, play that note, play this, put this fill in here, kind of thing. They all they have it flushed out before they go in. They know what they want to do. I believe they worked with Pulliam there at the beginning, and they'd work with a producer later that we'll get to in a little bit on one of their later releases. And the rest of them have all been independently released. It's a formula that works. Also, this remains Sloan's best-selling album of all time, reaching gold status in Canada, one chord to another. And it was the first um, Sloan album, one of the very first albums, a very young Brian Last would purchase. <laughs> it, uh, I remember seeing Everything You've Done Wrong again in our buddy Scott Langard's basement. Mm-hmm. And because that was when we were starting to get hip to much music. I think I got it a year late. I think I had got it by 97, and it came out in 96. Uh, but... I listened the hell out of that, and then I even yeah. re—I even rebought it a second time because I Cause you I sold it to my brother. Yeah, that's right. That's what he got into that. Sloan. Yeah, <laughs> they get double squeezing the the blood from the stone. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, everything you've done wrong. We'll go f- backwards here through my notes and do the singles first. the album reviews uh, after that um sloan's highest charting single in canada it reached number six and it was also featured in the movies the virgin suicides everything's gone green which i've never heard of and uh it too was a tv theme for the show living in your car which i've heard of but i've never seen and what a great song to play for a show called living (laughs) in your car Oh, there's so many movies that that song could have played for where the guy's like a loser yeah. and just like things fall apart on him. Like that that song is it, so, had so much mass appeal. It could have easily gone on any soundtrack, but. It's oh so well. perfect. Um, yeah. Actually, it's kind of funny. Uh, in, in those interviews with all the other musicians with Schwartzman, uh, one of the people they interview is Chaos. And he uh, he said the first song he ever heard by Sloan was Everything You'd Done Wrong. And his first reaction was, this sounds like Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> it does a little bit. What does, does does he think all white people sound alike? No, it's it's it's, it's how mellow it is yeah, and how true. upbeat it is, and the horns. I don't think Welcome Back, Connor had any horns, but at the time, and you know what, me and you listen with our ska obsession. We love yeah. horns in music, and I played saxophone back in the day. You know how bad I would have loved it for other bands to take up a horn section that didn't sound like Chicago? All right? <laughs> yeah. Give me a Sloan tour to the horn section. That would have been great for a young Ted Jessup. Everybody would have been recruiting a sax player. But no, it was me and you trying to record, recruit other people to be in our ska band. It was literally us. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was Sloan doing that and Cake. They had the trumpet. Cake had the trumpet. That, That's right. There wasn't too much else. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of other songs that feature the horn. And there was, there was two or three on, uh, on one chord to another that had a horn lines. Yeah. Um, other singles from this album include The Good and Everyone, which peaked at number nine on the Canadian singles charts. <laughs> Which isn't bad for a song that barely is longer than two minutes. Um, it actually featured on the first ever Big Shiny Tunes compilation, and uh, it served as the theme song to the CBC talk show George Strombolopoulos Tonight. Ah. Good, good way to kick off a show. Well, that's, yeah. uh, Sloan definitely has between uh, between uh, 
smeared and twice removed and now this they definitely know how to open an album yes they, yes they very do. strong openings well let's talk about my favorite i think after listening to all this it's still my favorite single by sloan i don't know if it's my favorite song by sloan but i think it's still my favorite single the lions you amend my friends the lions you amend like what's so Which nobody mentioned in their favorite Sloan songs interviews that I saw. I it's a Jay Ferguson song. I love this little happy bouncy tune, which I would find out later is about suicide. And I should have read the lyrics because it's right there. You said you found a way to end it peacefully. You know what I mean? Like I should have known, but I was so distracted by the up how upbeaten jovial it is. Well, I mean, uh, that, that's a, that's a sign of a good song. Like, look at Doug and the Slugs. There's tons of bands oh, yeah. who tuck in very dark things in very positive, like positive sounding music, but it's very dark lyrically. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's it is one of my favorite songs. And uh, it, it Jay, if, if we've been talking about you know Andrew Scott kind of been maybe the Ringo of this band, how they've always treated his songs as kind of a novelty. I think Jay is like the George Harrison. Jay's, just, Jay's like the secret weapon that lies in the background that doesn't hog the spotlight, but you know, when he gets on the mic, it's going to be a banger. Yeah, I cannot think of too many Jay songs that I, I feel were flat or just not good or that I skip over. Um, but yeah, he doesn't need to be in the spotlight. Although he does do a lot of interviews, but he just doesn't need to be a ham about it like Ringo and Paul. Um also, side note, did you know he's 52 with that red hair and ginger face? He looks way better than like a Bill Burr type who's the same age. <laughs> well, you know, with, I watched a couple interviews of the band earlier today and uh, uh, Ferguson always has that kind of like military pillbox hat yeah. that he wears in like every interview. So that kind of and they always wear hoodies and stuff like that all the time. So they dress young. They hide the wrinkles a little bit with the hat. There's, there's tricks that they're Except doing. Except for Pat, who literally looks like he should be out living like the Unabomber. He's oh, got yeah, this, yeah, or yeah. He looks like Alan Moore or something. Yeah. Actually, one of the interviews, they talked about Pat and all his different looks. Chris Murphy's like, I look the same as I did in 1999. Pat looks like a wizard. <laughs> yeah, I've seen the, Yeah, He keeps the long hair and the same glasses. Jay, and I, I think his hair gets a little longer. Uh, Scott got short hair and it went white. Yeah, but, he's, just, uh, he's just a silver-haired fox. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about reviews for this album. It was a critical triumph for the band. Triumph? There it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Mercer, who had that 100 Canadian albums list. I need to buy this book, by the way, if anybody has it. Uh, got to number 34 on his list, so kind of wedged in between smeared and twice removed. And it earned Sloan to date their only Juno Award for Best Alternative Album. How could they have only gotten one Juno? That's, I mean... (laughs) I don't know. This defies logic. And we're going to go through. I, I made sure I kept notes of who beat them. And everything else. So they had the Rose fucking Collective or whatever they're called. And the Waltons. <laughs> I think Sloan proved to be a bigger band than both both of them. So we'll, we'll see and what else is coming up when they lose. I'll tell you this much. This is something I've seen in uh, that not 
any other band that we've profiled so far, at least from my research, has had. They've actually had reviews done about them in Rolling Stone. Oh, I know. Entertainment Weekly. And so they're getting much more press down there than and than uh, a lot of these other bands that we profiled thus far. There, yeah, Brian, is a certain American uh, music editorial that following the release of one chord to another would review every single Sloan album. Let's just say this is a, a, an American review website that is known for its smugness and its elitism. Yep. And uh, we'll talk about them as we mosey on over to 1998. In 1998, Sloan came roaring back with Navy Blues, an album they intentionally tried to make a little, a little harder and have a little more punch than one chord to another and twice removed. And uh, it once again proved to be a major success, earning gold status and scoring a Juno nomination for Rock Album of the Year. Now, they lost this one, but this one's a tough call. They lost to Phantom, pa- Phantom Power by the Tragically Hip. And I'd have to go back and listen to Phantom Power. And maybe it's just because I'm on a big Sloan kick right now. And it could have gone either way. I think they might have might, maybe should have given it to Sloan. I mean... When I look at, I'm looking at the track listing for this, and like, if you want to stack singles against each other, yeah, like Money City Maniacs versus like uh, Fireworks or something on, or uh, she says what she means versus uh, something on. But then like Bob Cajun, I don't know, I I think it destroys these singles because bob cage is such a good song as much it as i love song. as much as i love money city maniacs uh i don't know i but think it's, uh, it's 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 here's the thing brian what you're doing you can't you can't do you know, I know. it's, it's, it's not like kind of apples and oranges go, uh, who's got the better catcher okay score point for one that team uh, who's got the better first baseman score a point for that team it doesn't work that way i know but i'm just yeah. saying like i'm trying to justify their decision but for, for me navy blues at least for the albums we're going to cover today, best one. Think so? Yeah. And you know what? I texted my brother after I listened to Navy Blues, and it was like I had the I had the the feels going. I felt great after listening to it, and I texted him. I'm like, dude, Navy Blues is phenomenal. What's your favorite Sloan album? He goes, you got it, Navy Blues. Really? So that's the one. Oh, I fucking love this album. Actually, now that I'm looking at the track list. Chester the Molester is a great song. Yeah. Iggy and Angus, she says what she means. Obviously, Money City Maniacs. There's, yeah, there's a lot of great songs on this album. Yeah. This one, whew. This one's great. Now, like, I I kept going back between that and between the bridges and then one chord. I was like, I don't know. know. But we'll get to between the bridges because I really love that album too. Uh, Critics again, massive praise across the boards. They love the catchy hooks and the clever lyrics. Here's where Pitchfork, those smug bastards, started reviewing <laughs> Sloan. They gave this album, out of 10, a 6. The review, written by some asshole named Dwayne Ambrose, he wrote it, he didn't even write it as a standard review. He wrote it as a sketch of Sloan attending a Beatleholics Anonymous meeting. It was as smug as smug gets. Anyway, just talking about that's going to be mad. Let's go on some stuff that's going to make me uh, happy here. The singles from this album. Um, 
you had Keep On Thinking. She says what she means. She means what she says. She says what she means. And the lead single to this album, which reached number seven on the top ten singles charts and number four on the alternative singles charts, Money City Maniacs. Can I ask you, Brian, what is it about Money City Maniacs that makes it so great? Um, well, let's see. It's got a infectious chorus. It's got a great opening. Uh, it's, it rips a solo by Pat like he likes to do. And it's just, you know, it's the tempo kind of goes up and down. It slows down, picks back up. This, you know, it's just, uh, it's definitely... This is a song that if they were having a kind of meh set, this is a song that they would play halfway through and it would rejuvenate the crowd for the home yeah. stretch. And like, this is a song, you know, the, bef- you know, there's a spot right before Pat's solo where everything, it's a breakdown. And then, uh, you know, Jay's just strumming the guitar and then it kicks into the bam, 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 yeah. bam and then, uh, then Pat rips the solo. This could be like when they're doing a little breakdown, you know, they could all stop playing, doing like a big clap, kind of get everyone going <laughs> like, let's go, you little pansies. What are you sitting on your hands for? You know what I mean? Like, uh, so it's, it's everything you want in a single. It's um, while those early singles and stuff were very, very Beatles influenced. This almost has a kiss vibe to it. This is very arena rock. I'm getting the ki- I'm getting Kiss off of this. I'm getting uh, the Kinks off of this. I'm getting big arena, big stadium, big crowds, and they've arrived and they know it. And the video was cool too. And the video was just simply them playing in front of a blue screen. And they filled yeah. in the blanks later, but it looks awesome. There was a song on this album. I think it was the Andrew Scott song. She so seems so heavy. Yeah. I can't remember which one it was. I'd have to quickly thumb through, but it had a very thin Lizzy kind of kiss vibe to it as well. Uh, so I think they were dipping into that for this album. Yeah. The other thing too, and he mentioned kiss. So in kiss, you get Paul singing, you get Gene singing. Ace has a couple of songs, but they sing together. They harmonize. And I really like yeah. the harmonizing in this album as well. That's always been a big thing that I love with bands where everybody sings and has their parts. They finally did it here, and it took them a couple albums, but they finally got there. And maybe it just, you know, hits on my uh, my music senses. All the things that I musically get excited, my music fetishes, if you will, <laughs> tickles those fancies. Yeah, uh, those- it's it's definitely a, a tactic. Well, it's not a tactic. It's just a skill set that they finally started to yeah. uh, utilize, because they can all sing, and so like, why not? Yeah. Get Why everybody involved in band. Yeah. You know? Um, this Although song that could some... almost be, like, the sorry, before you continue, but like going back to their early stuff, that could almost be one of a detractor that uh, 
that Sloan's not quite a band as it is almost like a collective because you know how everything is very segregated you know Pat yeah. does this and then I tell you what to do here this is where Money City Maniacs is where it almost feels like things start to come together as more of a band working in unison than one guy kind of dictates the show for that particular song you know what I mean yeah like I know in the lines you amend uh, like Jay's the lead singer but Murphy's got like two lines in it and I always thought that was cool, just how he's saying this one little part of the song yeah. instead, you know. But here they're all kind of singing together, and I, I really, really enjoy that. Uh, Money City Maniacs would become a big anthem in Canada. Um, big air, airplay on much music, uh, and it was actually featured in a bunch of commercials. Labatt Blue used it. Future Shop used it. In fact, to this day, people still tell Chris Murphy, hey, can you play that Future Shop song? Really like that one. <laughs> Uh, it was featured in an episode of the short-lived J.J. Abrams show, Revolution, as well as the hockey movie, Goon. And speaking of hockey, the Halifax Mooseheads also use it as their entrance song, where they all come onto the ice. So that's oh, that's cool. A, that's perfect. I'm surprised it didn't get picked up in uh, any of the NHL games at that era. But You know, they, they did do a sports video game um, a little later on. I'll get, I don't know if we'll get to it this episode. But I definitely played this video game, and they're not the only Canadian band on this list. We've talked about the other one before. Yeah. Uh, but we'll get into that in just a little bit. Um, Sloan kind of took the year of 99 off. You know what I mean? They're riding this success, um, and they, they decided to record a double-disc live album called Four Nights at Palace Royale. Uh, we don't usually spend a whole lot of time on live albums on Canada FM, uh, but I will say that the album's rap among fans is that it accurately recreates the experience of attending a Sloan show. So that's good. When you can transition that to disc, then that's a good album. That's a good live album for me. Yeah, any any band can sound great in a studio when you have a million takes or a, you know, especially now in the era of digital production where you can just like fix the t- uh, what the mistakes, but to translate that and also take it up a notch, make yeah. it uh, make it a little more unique live than in uh, on record. I'm moving around a whole bunch here in my seat. I feel like I'm Jiminy Glick. <laughs> um, all right, let's talk about uh, Between the Bridges, because that was next up on their uh, albums list. And I know we're not spending a whole lot of time in the between on these uh, listings, but there's on the there's not a whole lot of drama. We got through the drama already. Um, you know, they toured. They did their shows. There's just not a lot of story in between albums, you know? They're a very musically driven band, and that's what happens when you're together for 30 years. Anyway. Well, that's like uh, what I told you a couple years back. Other Brian got me that live album, or not live album, the, the documentary where the Weaker Thans were from, were from Winnipeg, yeah, and it's about, yeah. their, it's about their adventures on the road. There is literally no drama. It is the most boring <laughs> thing ever. It's literally like on their days off, they're like fishing in a creek. But it's a band that likes each other and likes working together. No, I know. It's not a bad thing. It's great. It's just, uh, you know, if you're if you're trying to watch a live documentary or something expecting a little bit of friction or anything, it's literally like, I didn't sleep so well. That bus was rickety. That's about as much drama as you get. Well, Between the Bridges was Sloan's next album. Um, And it's an interesting album for the boys as it didn't receive nearly as much commercial promotion as their previous releases. And it got shut out at the Junos. However, to this date, it's garnered them some of their best reviews from American critics. The AV Club called it their most realized effort. Exclaim called it a pop thrill from start to finish. 
And the Washington Post wrote, the fact that all four musicians both write and sing gives the sound breadth, yet at no cost to the cohesiveness. There's a guy who got a dictionary for Christmas. <laughs> that's, that's every person who wants to be a writer. They can't just say, you know, the musicianship is top notch. They have to say the whatever, whatever, whatever is splendid. But also, oh, but don't you get a Brian? The writers, they, they use words that make you think. If I wanted to think. You get it? It's a. Uh, that's actually not so bad. I can't tell how hard you're laughing at home, but uh, <laughs> you know what, Ted? One to ten. You're not the only one that worked a full day. All right. Uh, yeah, also, Brian, you trying to be funny? It must be that new kind of humor where the audience laughs on the inside. I will end you. <laughs> Pitchfork also gave it a seven point nine out of ten. That's nuts. Yeah, Pitchfork. This is, I think, this is Pitchfork's highest rating for a slow so. album. Yeah. Uh, but what I'm talking about, how they, how they, it, it didn't get a lot of promotion. It only had one single, and it's a hell of a fucking single. Losing California. I'm cursing a lot of this album. Must be Losing California, one of my favorite singles by them, peaking at number 18 on the Canadian charts. Hey, you saw the Instagram post earlier this week. They even got on Late Night with Conan O'Brien and played this song. And much like Losing California, it's got a great music video, just involves them performing in front of a blue screen. But the difference is those little formations that we talked about where like Jay will be on the keyboards or Chris will be on the drums. Those are all played out by these little subsections in this massive like CGI field. And they're all playing Losing California, but it's a different formation. There's one formation where they're all playing guitar. And yeah, it's a little acoustic yeah. number. Yeah. And then at the end of the video, I think like Pat and Andrew get Chris and Andrew get into a fight. No, he, uh, uh, JC's no one's on the drums. So he starts playing the drums. He, and then I think yeah, Pat's still singing or something. No, it was Andrew. Andrew was singing, and then Pat shoves him out of the way and starts singing the chorus, and then he falls to his knees crying, and they're all, like, getting <laughs> mad at him. And they're like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. That's a fun video. Yeah. Um, also, the song Friendship, I believe, got some spins on Canadian Rock Radio, too, because when I was listening to the album, I definitely know that song. So that must have been played somewhere for it to stick out for me. Um, aside from Smeared, which had those, you know, shoegaze influences, this is Sloan's hardest rocking release to this point. It's awesome, and it really plays well off of um, Navy Blues. Uh, if you listen to them back-to-back like I did, uh, it kind of seems like a seamless transition at the beginning. And then as the album goes on... It gets harder and harder and harder, and it becomes its own thing. It's really a cool feeling when you listen to them back to back, and I absolutely love this. Yeah, um, it'd be number two, close tie with uh, Navy Blues for my uh, for number two on my ranking the first six uh, sort of thing. And yeah. go ahead. 
No, is you you go ahead. No, because I want to hear what else he had to say about this album before we move on. Because I can't believe we're almost at album number six. Well, it's just the the I'm seeing a lot of balance on this, and uh, like there's a lot more Scott songs. Yeah. Uh, more balance, uh, and also they're like I'm looking at the liner notes here. It's like it says writers Andrew Scott slash Sloan, Chris Murphy slash Sloan, where they're like they're. Remember how I was saying, you know, in the album prior where they were using more harmonies and getting yes. more cl- uh, inclusive together? It felt like they're actually like, this is another step further in that cohesiveness where everyone's on the same page. It's not just like, hey, you do this, you do that. It's, hey, let's do this together. Yeah, which is great. That's how a band should be. You're a yeah. family. Come on, let's play together at my house after school. I got high C and Fluffernutters. We'll watch Beverly Hills 90210 when it's over, and we'll all do our homework later. When did you ever watch Beverly Hills 90210? I just picked a show that was popular at the time of Sloan starting out. It was the late 90s. You could have done... Wait. No, when they started out, which was early 90s. Yeah. Plus, they seem like 90210 kind of guys. Are you kidding me? They're probably watching some, like, The Lair Report or something. (laughs) Well, you know what? It's funny that you mentioned old Canadian, te- well, not teen television shows, because we're getting into their next album, uh, Pretty Together, and I might be able to find a connection here. Okay? Uh, pretty Together, slowing album number six, and the last one we're going to cover for uh, part one. We did this pretty speedy. I'm proud of ourselves. I thought it would take us all day, but we flew right through it. Um, it was Sloan's next release in 2001, and uh, the first album with BMG Music Canada. They went major label for this, not something they do very often. So it got a little bit of extra promotion because of that association and reached number 12 on the Canadian album charts. And it did indeed score a Juno nomination for Rock Album of the Year. But they were up against a juggernaut that year at the Junos, Brian. And whether this band deserved this win or not, they lost Wait, to Nickelback. Oh, okay. And Silver Side Up. Yeah, that, that's a... I mean, I'd take this over that, but I mean, you just can't deny how successful that album was, so... You know, I almost wanted us to do a Nickelback episode. Just to do the deep dive. And to see, are people that hard on them? For a reason. Like, I know Chad Kroger's a douche. And I know How You Remind Me was overplayed like you wouldn't believe. And they fell into this trap where they were just making the same shit over and over and over again. And it was dull and manufactured and boring. I'm still waiting for, like, a butt here. (laughs) Where are they really bad? Because they've got a couple of those songs in there. Like, um... These are later. This is, these aren't off Silver Side Up. But I remember when How You Remind Me came out. out I really liked the, the chorus. You know, where the little pause. Bend up. Bend down. You know, I like that little <laughs> stiltedness to it. And I remember really liking some of their early stuff, too. Uh, like Worthy to Say, I remember, was a great song. I so, remember really liking that song, Too Bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, and like, this is what did it for me. I remember one, I think it was like a Saturday afternoon in the summer. I was driving around, uh, I think I would have had my license by this point. I can't remember. I was driving with my brother and 
literally how you remind me was on like four stations simultaneously. I'm like, all right, I'm done with this song. It, I didn't mind it at first. It wasn't yeah. punk and ska, but I, I'm like, it's not my cup of tea, but I'm like, this ain't bad. But now I'm just like, I'm fucking done with this yeah. thing. Yeah, I know. Well, it was so overplayed. Yeah. Um, you know what? Here, here's the deal. We can't do a Nickelback episode with the format that we have right now. But maybe at some point if we need to buy some time or in between seasons, maybe we do an off topic on Nickelback. Maybe we look and see if really they were that bad. Maybe we look into the earlier stuff. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. You know, you know we we're not going to worry about it right now. You know what we should do? We should, uh, we should save it for the winter or the fall, like whenever you come down next. And we'll record oh, we'll it, do together, it together. That's a good we'll, idea. We'll sit there smoking cigars and be like, hey, this shit is kind of. So, if nothing else, the hilariousness of us with cigars and the slapping each other on the back will uh, get through the awkwardness and the contempt for Nickelback. What was the episode? You used to watch Just Shoot Me, right? A little bit, yeah. Do you remember the episode where, like, um, uh, Jack has to do a photo shoot with this guy who's, like, even richer than him? And in the photo shoot, they're, like, smoking cigars or, like, standing by, like, this big thing of the earth. And the guy's being a big jerk to Finch. And so Jack wants to, like, kiss up to the guy so he starts insulting Finch, too. <laughs> Just being horrible to him. And they're like, ah! I was, Slapping each other on the back I with their cigars. I don't remember that. I don't remember That's that episode. That's like, but us being mean to Nickelback. I was visiting my parents the other day, and yeah. they were watching Seinfeld. And the episode where... Elaine breaks up with Putty, and he, they keep doing the backslide bet. Yeah. And so by the, the I think it's the fourth time she loses. Jerry's just sitting there. He's got the cigar. He's like, eh. <laughs> and she keeps paying him out money. I couldn't stop laughing. Uh, it's a good accessory to uh, to, in, in, to, also, to victory to insult. Yeah. To victory over someone else's dignity. Also, random Seinfeld side note. So I was telling my parents, I mean, I'm not going to go into personal details here, but because of the personal thing my family's been going through, I I told them, I said, you guys need, you know, a summer of Lynn and Dave. And then literally my dad flips on Seinfeld and the summer of George episode was on. I was like, what the hell? There you go. It was meant to be, Brian. It was kismet. Yeah. Yeah. All right. uh, Pretty together. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only yes, it lost to Nickelback at the Juno Awards. Uh, it only got two singles released, but these were kind of like two of the best Sloan singles. You had if it feels good, do it. Which reached number six in the Much Music Countdown. It was featured in the movie The Girl Next Door with fellow Canadian Alicia Cuthbert. Yep. And in the Major League Baseball video game, Triple Play 2002, which I definitely had. <laughs> and that was also with, I believe it was Business by Treble Charger was in that game. So they had both of these like Canadian uh, alt-rock bangers in that video game. And it was a baseball game. Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it also, uh, if it feels good, do it. On, uh, it earned a nomination for a single of the year. But unfortunately, it lost to uh, How You Remind Me. Yeah, Nickelback kind of swept that year. Uh, Let's get on, though, to a song that has become one of the most talked about Sloan songs of all time. Um, Sometimes I I often throw this out. What's a song uh, by a band you don't like 
that you love. And I know a few people who they don't like Sloan for whatever reason, but they fucking love this song, The Other Man. Wound up being one of the top 35 most played songs on the radio in 2002, and it features a great music video. It's just this guy who's late to conduct an orchestra, but they shoot it at uh, where they shot Degrassi High back in the 80s. Uh. Yeah. So he told you I'd, I'd, I'd fold it back into a teen comedy. Yeah, that's <laughs> the same place that they shot it. Uh, and I remember freaking out when I saw this because that was that summer where I think, what was it? They showed Degrassi two episodes on Showcase at noon. So I made sure I was home to watch those. And they showed another two episodes of Degrassi on CBC um, at four. So I made sure I got four episodes of Degrassi in. Did you a not day. have a job that summer? No, it was two thousand two. I had a job. I I had a, I got the job late summer at the deli. I was the dishwasher and I hated it. And I worked there for like two weeks, and then I you know fucked off and went to the Labor Day game with you in Park Hill. <laughs> and uh, then in the fall, oh, yeah, I got that's a where job you got the, at the Let's Celebrate. Yeah, you got the you got the. Argo Suck Alouette Swallow shirt there. Yes, I did, which I couldn't wear anywhere. <laughs> I, wore to, I did wear it to a, uh, what's it called? I did wear it to a Ticat game a couple of times. And I remember some old drunk woman walking up to me. And she was like, oh, yeah, Argos. I'm like, read it. Argos suck. And her husband was rooting for the Ticats. He's like, ah, I told you. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's like, oh, shut up, man. They left. There's um, nothing better. And walking to a tie cat game down one of those side streets up to the stadium. Yeah. Like my friend's dad used to live right by the stadium and there's nothing better than sitting on his front porch and just screaming at the opposing fans. Unless, <laughs> unless we lost and they would be the biggest cunts about it. But oh, uh, like, get the fuck out of here, you piece of shit. Like, fuck you. It's just like, are we going to have a row right in front, right before the game? Like people oh, just didn't God. give a shit. No, they don't. Not at CFL games. <laughs> Certainly not. A um, little more stuff about the other man. Uh, Chris Murphy yeah. wrote this song about his relationship with Leslie Feist, a.k.a. Feist, who dated both him and broken social scene member Andrew Whiteman at the same time. And he's the bass player in Broken Social Scene, so she must have a thing for bassists. Um, Jay Ferguson said this was like one of their most collaborative songs as well. So while the idea was Chris Murphy's, they all brought something to the table for this song. And a lot of the people I talk who really, really love this song and uh, had this song resonate with them, it's because they've been in a situation where at least they thought they were the other man or contemplated being the other man. Uh, my question to you is, and you don't have to get into specifics. Have you ever? Let's just. Have you ever felt like the other man? Um, I mean, in terms of the like, I've never, to my knowledge, I've never been the other man where I knew the person was dating someone unless they lied mm -hmm. to me. But uh, I've definitely felt like the other man in the sense of like people's priorities. They're like, uh, he, he's an afterthought kind of thing. Oh, but, okay, uh, okay. Uh, so it's definitely so relationships have kind of fumbled out that way. Um, 
And also, there's definitely been times, even in just friendships, I felt like I text you more than me, or than you text me. You know what I mean? I'm like, I've often like felt like people would call other friends before they call me, so I always feel like the other man in that sense. Unless this is not where you're going. I, no, I was talking about like a, a, a romantic relationship at the time, but you can totally be the other man in a in a friendship. Yeah, yeah, but that's no, possible so, too. So short story long, no, I've never felt like the that other man like Chris did with that oh. two time and hoe. <laughs> well, I remember I, I felt like the other man once. And this oh, yeah? is very, very young, inexperienced Teddy. Very gullible Teddy. Uh, oh. Teddy who did not know a whole lot about the world around him. I think I know where you're going and, with this story. Uh, I'm not going to get into too many details because there's not a whole lot to kiss and tell about. But uh, I assumed I was the other man. It turned out I assumed incorrectly. Uh, but I do remember while I still thought I was the other man having the song come on and kind of being like, uh, was there like an episode of, do you remember like, uh, kind of like accepting your role as being a villain? And it's a weird feeling. And it doesn't feel that great. But the time you're so deluded and you're so high on your own supply <laughs> and your own shit that you, you kind of go with it. Like, yeah, that's me. Now the other man, that well, other loser can just deal with it. You ever do that? Uh, you're. It's not a. Hmm. I'm not a psychopath, so no. But uh, <laughs> you're. I mean, you're a big wrestling fan. I used to yeah. be many years ago. So I mean, we're both familiar with the heel role, and uh, so I mean, sometimes people like playing the heel. I didn't like it, but I was so enthralled by it thinking it was going to work out for me and also being very entitled thinking I've suffered long enough now's my time to shine do you know what I mean that's just bad Yeah. and that's how I felt you know when we go through these songs Brian whether it's Sloan or any other band sometimes songs can touch a nerve and I think the other band has touched a nerve with a lot of people <laughs> Yeah, if people have cheated or been, uh, you know, gotten been the placed. Cheat-y. Yeah. 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 Well, I have never, ever, ever cheated. And as it turns out, I was never the cheaty anyway. So go fit. <laughs> My hands are still clean on this one. <laughs> well, diving, diving back into, I mean, you know, if you want to keep talking about the other man, we can. But the thing that look, going through this album, like I can see that Pitchfork not as high on this. I mean, still a positive 6.6 6 out of 10. Still uh, marginal thumbs up, I'd say. Or uh, 66%. The the Brian Last high school average. So, pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, but uh, in terms of... I did feel like this was a bit of a step back. But after coming off of uh, Between the Bridges, that's not easy to duplicate. So, um, But I will say this. The first few songs on this album really had and also like just the album artwork very california e. yeah i yeah, felt a yeah. very beach boys influence on this like the you know sloan's always credited as like a power pop band and this is one of the first albums i really felt it um yeah. because there i felt you know the song in the movies uh dreaming of you there's like the first few songs had a very california vibe and yeah. then the the song pick it up and dial it out i felt or pick it up and dial it sorry i felt that was a straight who tribute 
because uh you know andrew scott had very thundering drums and just like the guitar style and the, the way they were singing i felt very um roger daltrey ish yeah so yeah i thought that was really good but uh, on the whole i just felt it was unbalanced but it's still i'd still give it a thumbs up yeah see I'm, I'm still i'm following along with you on this don't mark me wrong i like this album but you're coming off of Navy Blues and Between the Bridges. And to this point, those are my two favorite Sloan albums. Yeah. Um, I needed something more. And even though it was a good album, even though I, hey, if you, you want to hear some good music, there's a lot of good tunes on here. Yeah. You are, you're, you're comparing good against great at this yeah. point. And that's, uh, that's hard to do. So we're going to put a pin in it there. We've done the first half of the Sloan discography. Brian, can you give me a quick, give me your top three out of the first six? Uh, wait, the albums or songs? Albums. You can do songs oh. too if you want. Okay. Uh, I would say... It used to be one chord to another. For the longest mm-hmm. time, I'm like, ah, this is the best. But now that I've I've had some hindsight, I'd probably put it between the bridges, one chord, um, and a tie between uh, smeared and navy blues. Really? Yeah. See, I would go. Um, I'll give you my sorry, order. Uh, the- sorry, twice removed, twice removed, twice removed. Over what? Navy blues or smeared? Smeared. Okay. Yeah. See, I'd go probably um, Navy Blues, number one. Between the br- Bridges, number two. Uh, twice Removed, number three. So I'm right away. We're just, we're just off on Navy Blues for some reason. Um, number four, one chord to another. Uh, number five, it would be pretty together. Then number six would be smeared. I'm just not into the shoegaze. Yeah, that's fine. You know, Underwhelmed, the killer song. The rest of the album, not as killer as the rest of the releases. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. I love Navy Blues. I think yeah. I, st- I still just have this uh, much more memories tied to one chord, so that's why I was just bumped but, it a little higher. And that was higher. your first Sloan album. Yeah. It's also so one of, of my first albums, happen. period. Yeah. I think I actually Apparently might have been... that after Clumsy. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Awesome. We'll get to, we'll get to LP one of these days. I don't know. Yeah. Do they do they fall in line here? Because I, I think they, so. Even I though I know they had, they had a following in the, in the states. states and they played, um, they played Woodstock. They didn't have a lasting hit. That's so. Like if we were going innocent, to go down to the, innocent was played in an episode of Scrubs. Oh, maybe. Uh, you know what? They did a lot of work with WWE too. They did Kane's theme music for a while. No. Oh, they did Chris Benoit's theme music. Our Lady Peace. Ooh. Yeah, it was. They did a great job with it too. It's just, ugh. yeah. I was fortunately, to, fortunately, that didn't work out so well in the long run. Probably worked out great for OLP, but um, <laughs> they, they made dollars off of his entrance music. I can tell you that. I was listening to the radio the other day, and it's this guy did a breakdown about how much people actually make off entrance music. It's insane yeah. how much they pay. Oh, I know, I know. It, they, they, you make great money, and you can ask, you know, Arle Peace, uh, Finger Eleven. They did Kane's entrance music for a while, so they got some of that good, good Vince McMahon money. Um, trying to think of other Canadian bands that really fell in there. I, I know, like they've worked with like the Theory of the Nickel Faults before, um, 
But uh, yeah, yeah. So there you go. Anyway, uh, stay tuned. Part two is coming up next week. We are going to go into a world of Sloan that I was not all that familiar with. Their releases, oh geez, parallel parallel play or no action packed, action packed. You end at twelve. You had Commonwealth parallel play. The one Um, I really really liked. We'll talk about it next week. Uh, Double cross, double cross. The one I like the most. Where is it? Oh, there's twelve. Where are you? Was it never hear the end of it? Never hear the end of it. Never hear the end of it. Yeah. We're going to get into all of those albums next week for part two on our, basically it's our season finale. The end of season one of Canada FM, part two of Sloan. Make sure you join us next week. Follow us on Instagram. Give us a five-star review on Twitter because we are five-star men. I think you mean uh, Apple Music, you boomer. What did I say, Twitter? Yeah. I'm tired. It's the, I did pretty good for a guy who's been up so long. Hey, um, hey, hey, hey. To quote JT, cry me a river. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Get off my back. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, and uh, yeah, you can follow us on Twitter. We just started doing the tweets. We're in the Twitterverse now. We're the big bird. And uh, apparently, listen to... Uh, this week's episode of the Josh Adam Meyer podcast, the 500, because Brian thinks something's going to happen. So we'll see. They're doing the Smashing Pumpkins that we both love anyway. So make sure you check it out. I mean, that's just the that is the podcast that basically inspired this. So, yes. I mean, for better, or for worse, you can either email Josh Adam Myers and say, hey, fuck face. This is your fault that uh, these two idiots think they can do this thing. Or, hey, good on you for inspiring them to do this. But it's also a good it's a fun podcast that Ted and I, you know, with him being in Thunder Bay uh, and me being in Hamilton, it was something that I mean, not that we needed any help reconnecting or anything because we're best friends. But it's like we we text and call each other, and be like, "Oh, did you listen to this album? Oh, it was great." Or this is this, and that, and that, and it kept it kept the musical fires burning for both of us yeah. for a while during a period of stagnation. I'd say we did so, our, we did, our, we did our, used to do our own little post show, but we wouldn't record it. We just talk about uh, yeah. the album in question. So yeah, thanks to so. thanks to those guys for. That. Chat with us this week and giving us some sage advice. Yes. And yes. Uh, Morty if uh, Morty Coyle, Josh Adam Myers. And uh, last thing I'll say is if you want to email us and uh, tell us either we suck or do whatever, canonfmpod at gmail.com. And like Ted said, even if you want to say we suck, I have a very self deprecating sense of humor. So I love the, I'm like the, I'm like uh, Iraqi Pete on Saturday Night Live. I love the booze. I prefer constructive criticism. <laughs> That's because Ted is a delicate little dandy who needs the uh, the kudos. Anyway, uh, hopefully you enjoyed yourself and you'll enjoy yourself oh, just as much next week. Anyhow, until then, I'm Ted. I'm Brian. Yeah, but you Why'd that make you laugh so much? I thought you were just going to say, like, take it easy, or lights, not friggin' Adam Sandler having a stroke out there. Mind check, one, two, one, two.